series, and I'm going to begin with uh, Jesus. Surprise, surprise. That's a good idea, right? Let me start with a story about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus has, has healed a blind man. He and his disciples have been traveling around. They come across this blind man, and a very interesting conversation ensues about the blind man and why he is blind. I'm going to leave that story for another day because what happens afterwards is what I'm really interested in. So the blind man and Jesus part company. And so the blind man goes back to his family and his friends, and they all notice that he isn't blind anymore. Can you imagine that surprise? And so they end up uh, talking with him, and he explains to them what happens. And so they do the natural thing. They take him to church. And they take him in front of the, uh, the religious leaders of the day. And uh, as they're talking with him, the religious leaders begin an investigation find out what really happened. Because it is the Sabbath, it is the holy day of the week, and there is no way that a miracle would be performed on the Sabbath. It's a little messed up, isn't it? But that's the thought. And so they inquired of him, and they asked, they didn't believe him. And so what do they do? They invite his parents to come in and testify upon his, on, on his behalf. Okay, that's a little strange as well. They let him go and they confer among themselves and then they invite him back a second time. Invite, I'm using the word loosely. <laughs> they ask him some more questions about who this person was that actually affected this healing and, and <clears throat> wanted to know all about him. And this, this blind man says, look, I, I don't know about anything you're talking about. All I know is I was blind and now I see. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful thing that is. But the religious leaders of the day didn't accept that. And so they ended up insulting him and, and basically kicking him out of the, the local synagogue, the local assembly. Now Jesus hears about this and encounters the man again and begins his own investigation, asking him what happened. And he explained to him the entire story. And Jesus makes this amazing proclamation he ends up turning the tables and just saying flat out, he says, you know what, it's those religious leaders. They're blind. Spiritually blind. And then he offers up a little bit of teaching after that. And it's an, it's an amazing story that leads up to this. And, and Jesus then begins to teach within earshot of these religious leaders. Here's what he says. This is in John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, the religious leaders, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. He makes this very clear. And as he goes on towards the end of his teaching, he says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Ooh, who's he talking about? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, how many of you have heard this, this passage before? And have it to the full. 
That's the phrase I want to focus on very briefly, because in some translations, you will hear that I have come to bring them life and bring it, do you know the word? Abundantly. Right? Have you heard that word? Abundantly. Abund um, this idea of abundance. The Greek word here is parasos. Let me hear you say parasos. Parasos. Don't be impressed. You can look it up. It's a very strong word. It doesn't mean just having a lot of something. It means super abundance. It means beyond imagination. It's a strong, vibrant, powerful word. And this is how Jesus describes the kind of life that he wants to bring. And by the way, life here is not the word we typically use for biological life, which, by the way, is bios. But rather, the term is zoe. And zoe means a quality of life. And that quality of life is something that's rich and full and abundant. I've come to give them abundant, rich quality of life. Do you understand? This is what he's talking about here, this idea of abundant, abundant life, super abundance. Sounds great, doesn't it? Abundant life. But here's a question. What does abundant life mean to you? it mean? Now, and we talk about this, and we toss this word around in church an awful lot. We talk about the abundant life that Jesus wants to give, and, and but what does it mean for you? Maybe it means a life that's healthy or without sickness or disease. That sounds pretty good. That would be abundant, right? No pain, no suffering. I notice the older I get, the little more, little more pain I have. I was telling somebody earlier today that um, I was out on Friday, that beautiful weather. I looked outside and I said, uh-uh, I can't stay in. I want to go out and work in the yard while I still got the chance. And, and I was digging and moving stuff around and whatnot, and it was feeling really good. And then I walked in the house, and I'm standing there for a few minutes, and then my back started hurting. Why is that? I don't understand that. Must mean I need to do more work outside, right? Yeah. But is that what abundance means, is that you're free from, from, from pain and, and, and illness? Well, maybe. Maybe for you, abundant life is financial. Um, maybe you've got a number in your head or a certain number of zeros in your bank account, right? Maybe, maybe that's what abundant life is. Or maybe abundant life is relational, that you have a certain kind of relationship with, with your significant other or with uh, your family or your friends. Maybe that all speaks to the idea of abundant life. Or maybe it's a combination of those things, or maybe it's all of them, or maybe it's none of them. Maybe you've got some other type of criteria to describe what abundant life. But my question then comes is, does, does abundant life mean perfect? Because sometimes I think we substitute that word, that abundant life is perfect life. What does it, what does it mean when we talk about abundant life? And more importantly, what do you think Jesus might have meant when he used the term abundant life. Because I still maintain that sometimes we have to, not sometimes, most of the time, almost all the time, we need to understand what that author was trying to communicate to that particular audience before we try to apply it to our own lives. 
So what do you think Jesus might have meant when he was talking about abundant life? That's the question that we're, we're going to kind of take up a little bit today. And I, I think there are several ways to get at this. I don't think there's just one way to do it. I think there's a variety of different places within the text that we can go and we can explore and we can understand kind of what Jesus was talking about, certainly what the New Testament writers were talking about when, it, when they were dealing with this idea of a quality of life. <clears throat> But what I want to do today is I want to return back to a passage that we just covered a couple of months ago. And, and I want to do that because it really resonated with me when I started thinking more about this idea of the abundance of life. Here it is. It's in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. How many of you remember that we dealt with the fruit, right? We had that really cool little graphic with all the fruit and the fruit colors and, you know. Would you agree that life characterized by these ideas might be abundant? Would you agree with that? That when you look at those, those ideas here, just take the first three, for instance, love, joy, and peace. How many of you could use a little more of love, joy, and peace in your life? Come on, be honest, you're in church, right? Yeah, love, joy, and peace. Regardless of what somebody says to you, what they did to you, whatever the circumstances, what would it be like to be able to experience love, joy, and peace moment by moment? That sounds like abundant life. But did you notice something? Did you notice that none of these ideas, not a single one of them, is dependent on external forces? Somebody doesn't make you love. Somebody doesn't make you joyful. Somebody doesn't make you peaceful, right? Those circumstances have nothing to do with it. They all come from within. They're not something dictated to you. There's something that, that comes out of you. In fact, wouldn't it be easier to actually handle some of life's challenges with love, joy, and peace? I mean, think about it. If you have a relational issue, it, wouldn't it be easier if you had a little more love? If you had some type of, of sickness or pain, wouldn't it be easier to deal with that if you had a joyful spirit about you? Let me tell you a quick story about my dad. My dad died of cancer five years ago. My dad fought gallantly because he had some joy. Somebody asked him, they said, you know, how are you with God? He goes, I know where I'm going. And there was a joy about him and a confidence about him. And, and this coming from a man who did not have what I would call the deepest faith in his life, but in that moment when it really meant something, he had a certain amount of joy and a certain amount of peace that allowed him to be able to handle his mortality. And because he was able to, the rest of us were able to as well. It's amazing how these kinds of concepts spill over. But it came from within. It wasn't something that was dictated to him. He didn't, he didn't choose to have that, but he could choose how he was going to handle it, right? If we have an economic downturn, wouldn't it be easier to deal with that if you had some peace in your life? Do you understand what I'm saying here? The abundance of life are things that come up, bubble up from within. They aren't things that happen 
to us or because of our circumstances or around us. I'm not preaching to anybody this morning. Abundant life, abundant life comes from within. The problem is it's not typically natural, is it? There has to be an inner transformation in order to have some of these ideas. Even if you just take the love, joy, peace, there's something that has to happen inside of us into that internal spirit, that inner person that causes that to occur. It's not something that not something that can be forced. It has to be from within. And we talk about this an awful lot. We talk about it in church an awful lot, and especially here. We call it a lot of different things. We call it things like maturity. We call it growth. We call it discipleship. We call it holiness. And if you remember the old school word, it's called sanctification. To be sanctified means to have that inner transformation that allows things like love, joy, and peace to bubble up from the surface. Inner change flows into changed behavior. Do you see that? Now, maybe some of you have experienced this for yourself. Maybe you know somebody who has experienced this dramatically. I know that I have. I've seen some people who are, who are like that. But there's a difficult thing here, and, and it's the elephant in the room, and we've got to call it out, and we've got to make sure that we deal with it. The challenge, of course, is that when we look at the church in general, statistically, we don't look any different than the rest of the culture, for the most part. L let me take, just as a for instance, the concept of divorce. Statistically speaking, there's the same rate of divorce inside the church as there is outside the church. Now, by the way, if that happened to you, there's no judgment here. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know anything. I'm not calling that down. I'm just saying I'm sorry that happened to you. And statistically speaking, the same is true inside the church as outside the church. And so I wonder, there's this part of me that wonders, have we actually been changed from the inside out? Has that actually occurred? And, and, and that troubles me. And I, w I wonder too, have we settled for something less than the abundant life that Jesus came to give? Ooh, it got quiet in here. Yeah. So today what I want to do is I, I want to start a bit of a conversation around this idea of interchange. We're going to cover uh, uh, something. We're going to cover it this week. We're going to cover it next week. Uh, then we take a break for Christmas. Yay, Christmas. And then I think we're going to pick it up again sometime in January. And we're going to talk about this idea of, of interchange because I think it's that important. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about relational holiness uh, if you're in a small group right now, then there's a, a good chance that you're um, studying a book called Welcome to Dinner, Church. And we're, we're dealing with this idea of, of relational um, kind of connectivity with the people around us. Because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Maybe he actually meant the person living next door. Just a thought. Yes, did he cast a wide net? Of course. But it could be right across the street, too. And so we're trying to deal with that seriously, and I want to I talk about 
this idea now of personal holiness because I'm not really sure that we can actually love our neighbors if we're not having that change inside of us that causes us to behave differently because it's not natural. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning, I tend to be a little on the selfish side. I like me. I want to do things for me. And so it is with everybody else. It's not natural for us to think about others, and so there has to be some type of interchange that occurs in each one of us in order to kind of live this stuff out. And so I want to start this conversation about how. How we might be able to deal with this interchange. How do we gain that interchange that leads to abundant life? Does that make sense? Does it make sense where we're going with this? Because I think this, this part is the why of all of it. The why, why do we want that change? Is because we want the abundant life that Jesus promised us. And I want to see it not only in the lives of the people that, that, I, that I rub elbows with, but I also want to see it in the church. Because I think what happens is, is that it begins a ripple effect, that it happens in our own lives, it happens to people around us, it happens in our neighborhoods, it happens in the segments of the city, and maybe ultimately beyond that. I don't know. Wouldn't it be cool to find out? I think so. There are two typical ways of pursuing interchange. Typical ways. First one is that we can try to earn it by doing stuff. We can try to earn um, this interchange. And when we do things, it's typically we're doing things for God, right? This is notorious happens, uh, notoriously happens among, among clergy people. And by the way, uh, when we get together, we talk about this. You know, we, we, we don't want to earn it. Because there's a problem here when you try to earn it. The thing is, we, we talk about this a lot, and you've heard this before. We are saved by grace. Yes? You've heard this? This is not a new concept? Guess what? You live by grace, too. It's not just being saved by grace. It's you are, you are living by grace as well. Here's what, what John writes to us. Jesus said this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's grace. Do you see it? We don't just receive salvation by grace. We actually live day to day by grace as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, improve ourselves, improve our skills and our competence in something. We can improve our productivity. Some of us need to do that more than others. Uh, we can improve our self-awareness. You should. You should do all of those things. Those are important things for us to function as human beings in this life. But please understand that improving your life, that self-help, that self-improvement is not the same thing as inner transformation. There's something spiritual about it that's different. And that inner transformation then turns into abundant life. Being more productive may or may not bring you more productive, may or may not bring you more abundancy. Are you with me? The second way that we can try to, try to, to pursue this inner transformation is uh, we can be passive about it. This is what I call God as slot machine. Jesus as magic wand. <laughs> well, if I just sit back 
then it's going to come, God's going to zap me, and I'm going to have abundant life. Really? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> doesn't quite work that way, does it? In fact, I think um, just to hope for that is, is not only misguided, I think Jesus actually resists being a magic wand. In fact, here, here's one of the things that he said to a group of people. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Because people were asking him, hey, do us a miracle. Perform for us, monkey. Yay. And Jesus said, mm-mm, you're not going to get that from me. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. I'm going to resist being the magic wand to be the slot machine, to be the spiritual lottery for you to receive that. I think that's important for us to remember. So now the question is, is what are we to do? How, how can we experience that interchange? Well, I think the only way to do that is, is simply this, to put ourselves where God can do his work put ourselves in a position, in a place where God can actually do his work. That's not the same thing as, as being active about it. It's not the same thing as being passive. It's participatory, allowing God to do his thing by putting myself in that place, putting myself before God in that way. Now, it's like a gardener. A gardener cannot make a seed grow, but he or she can cultivate that soil so the seed can grow. Does that make sense? So we're in the same kind of position. God's going to make that seed grow inside of us, but we have to create the environment, create the soil so that it can, can occur. And so I want to offer just two thoughts on how we might be able to engage with God for some of this inner transformation. Here, here's the first one. We have to have the right posture. And I'm not talking about just standing up straight, okay? We have to have a certain posture. Some people might call it an attitude. I think that's okay, too. But I think we, we, have, to, we have to have the right posture. And that posture includes some, some features. First of all, we need to have a posture of humility. And, and here's what I mean by that. I think at some level, we all have to acknowledge that we need some transforming. Because if we don't acknowledge the fact that we need some kind of change, then we're no different than the religious leaders who are spiritually blind. Can I just say that out loud? If you don't think that you need the change, that might be the first step of just looking inward and saying, okay, where do I need some change? My fundamental position on this is that every person, no matter how long or how short you've been a Christian, you've got another step to take with God. If you've quit growing, you'd be dying, right? And so the point is here that we all have another step to take. You may just be at a different point on the path than I am. Praise God. If you're ahead of me on that path, good, you've got something to teach. If you're behind me, great, I've got a hand to help you out. Do you see that? But to acknowledge the fact, first and foremost, to have the humility to say, I need some help, I need some transforming, is, is, I think, the right posture to take. Secondly, we have to have a posture of, of courage. Because here's the thing, when you are going to transform, when something's going to change, there's a loss. 
And some of us are afraid of the loss. What do I have to give up in order to follow God more deeply? And sometimes those things are very subtle and they're hidden from us until they come up and then it's like, uh-oh, now what? And we do, but you have to have that posture of courage and saying, you know what, God, if this is what you want for me, if I really need change, and, and I may not even see this area of my life, I'm going to have the courage. And there's the other posture, is a posture of trust. I'm going to have the courage to trust you. And here's the thing about trust that I think is really important. Sometimes we limit God's changes to our happiness. I want God to, you know, I want to be happy. Problem with that, though, the problem with that, though, is that if, if I'm only concerned about God and my happiness, then that means God serves me. Guess what? God is not as interested in your happiness as he is in your discipleship. And sometimes those things coincide, and sometimes they clash. How many of you experienced this? Right? It happens. And so we have to have this posture of trust that God has my best interest at heart, and I can trust him with this part too. If you want inner change, the first thing we have to do is adopt a help, helpful posture that includes these ideas. Here's the second thing. We must also, in order to have inner change, <clears throat> adopt some practices. Not just posture, but practices. We must create some kind of rhythm that puts us in connection with God. Now, here's the thing. Um, about two months ago, uh, we started this thing called the 60-60 experiment. And for those of you uh, who might be visiting today, here's what we did. Um, we took uh, the alarms on our phone and we set it to go off every 60 minutes. Not in the middle of the night. We did it from like, you know, 9 to 5 or something like that. But some days I get so busy or I'm working on something or I get focused on something else that I forget that God is with me that God is present, that I can connect to him at any point, and I have to interrupt those distractions. And that alarm goes off at 11 minutes after the hour. That's what I did. I did it, you know, 8, 11, 9, 11, 10, 11. And, and uh, Pastor Dan and I were talking about this, and it's amazing when those alarms go off. And, and, some, and what I, for me, what I've done is I've, I put little labels on my alarms, and it's different. Like, sometimes it tells me to pray for, for my wife and my girls. Uh, tells me to pray for, for the church. Um, sometimes it just asks me very simply, hey, where are your thoughts right now? I don't like that alarm. <laughs> because it goes off at really inconvenient moments. And sometimes it's, hey, God's with you. Have you checked in? Right? Something that breaks that cycle. So we did that every 60 minutes and we did it for 60 days. I did not know this. I did not plan this. But this is the way it worked out. Day 60 is Thanksgiving Day. I just love it when cool stuff like that happens. I had no idea. I wasn't looking at the calendar. I just, you know, we just started on one day, and hey, it turns out on the 23rd is day 60. Which, by the way, on your Thanksgiving day, I would just encourage you to set your alarm to go off every 60 minutes. Let, let's see what happens. Wouldn't that be cool? I'm just kind of excited about that. It'd be fun. I'm looking forward to doing that this year. 
because it's been a meaningful exercise. And by the way, I didn't do it every day. Some days I fell off the wagon. Guess what? The wagon's going slow enough I can jump back on. And you can do it any time. And just because 60 days is over doesn't mean that you can't continue to do it. If it's a meaningful type of practice, ah, there's the word, if it's a meaningful practice for you to connect with God, then do it. I'm giving you permission. There. Okay? In case you needed it, there it is. So, but the whole idea was to create this practice to keep us connected with God throughout the day. And for centuries, Christians had embarked on something called spiritual discipline in order to stay connected and to pursue this idea of inner transformation. The point is not that those practices are going to do anything, but rather it puts us in proximity with God so he can do the thing that only he can do. Probably the, the most um, uh, prolific writer on this is a man named Richard, Richard Foster, and he wrote a, a pivotal book called The Celebration of Discipline. Um, there's another uh, author, his name is Dallas Willard, who's written another book on spiritual disciplines, and I find it fascinating that the two of them served in the same church for a number of years. And they're probably the foremost authorities on spiritual practices. Anyway, uh, Foster um, talks about different types. He has inward practices or disciplines, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. He has outward Uh, uh, disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, ooh, that one sounds like fun, Uh, service, and then corporate, things that we do together, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. These are disciplines that the church has pursued over the centuries in order to achieve or to see the inner transformation that leads to abundant life. Do you see this connection? Now, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not the only list. There are other spiritual disciplines that are out there. In fact, uh, we've got a whole series of them that we're working on as well. There's different ways to divide this up. And uh, we've got one here at Thrive that we're going to roll out at the beginning of next year. And I'm kind of excited about it because it it just is another take on this that I think might make sense for, for some people. The important thing here is to just engage in something. Because it's so easy to not. It's so easy to just simply sit back and hope that you get zapped. But it doesn't work that way. Now, does that mean that God can't work that way? No, and obviously he has, but those are the exceptions that aren't the rule. Most of us have to slug it out Keep that rhythm of connection with God and over a period of time, see the change. There's a reason for that, by the way. I heard a guy talk about this once, and I think it's important to to mention it here. He said, in the church, we tend to take the miraculous and we hold that up as an example. And we go, yay, so-and-so had some kind of major change in their life. And it was miraculous overnight classic example of this is drug addiction or alcoholism, and they're immediately healed from it. And it's great, but again, that's the exception. The vast majority of us have to go through a process. And this this individual that I was listening to, he said, you want to know why 
you got to go through the process. Because people who are immediately changed don't often have patience for people who are not. It's the person who has fought their way through, who has wrestled with God over an issue. They're the ones who can hold out their hands to somebody else who's struggling because you get it. One thing I've, I've learned dealing with addicts over the years is addicts don't want to talk to anybody who hasn't been an addict because you don't understand. And we don't if we've not experienced that ourselves. That's why we go through this process. That's why we deliberately engage in practices that put us in proximity with God so that when a brother or a sister is going through the same thing, we can say, oh yeah, I've been there. By the way, it gets better. Hang in there. God's still here. He's with you. We can be that encouraging voice that we all need. Be the encouragement that you would like to have yourself, I think. To find out something that regularly puts you in touch with God, whether it's you know, one of these or it's another practice, continue to do 6060. It's a discipline because we're distracted and busy, especially at Christmas time, right? We're getting ready to gear up for that. And if you want to learn more, um, Pastor Dan, Pastor James, myself, we'd be delighted to chat with you about those things. Um, might be able to put you onto some resources. But please remember, the practices themselves do not produce the change they put us where change can actually occur. I can't stress that enough. Because otherwise we get dogmatic about it. We get, we get legalistic about doing these things, and that's not the point. That's why I don't get bent out of shape when somebody falls off the wagon on the 60-60 experiment. Because sometimes it happens. But you know what? God's got grace in abundance, super abundance. He's got that kind of grace so that we can get back on and get in touch with him and keep going. Understand? That's an important thing to remember. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to finish with this. I had a friend of mine years ago, he said, the best kind of preaching comes when God is messing with you. And I'm just going to tell you up front, this is something that God has been messing with me very recently, um, off and on over the years. But, and here's the thing. When you plant a church, you've got two things that you're constantly holding in balance. One is the system side. The other is the spiritual. And the system side are a lot easier because there's a certain amount of control we have over that. I don't have any control over the spiritual side. Some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's this balancing act that we play we try to understand the systems of building a church and the spiritual side of seeing life change in people. And none of us got into this to build a cool system. We got into this because we wanted to see fruit. We wanted to see life change. We wanted people to come in and to know Jesus and to get to be more like him and to reproduce other people who want to get to know Jesus and to be like him because God knows it's what we need in this world today. It doesn't need another church. 
needs a whole lot more Jesus. Would you agree? <laughs> yes, I think so. And so the challenge today is to simply ask yourself, do I want abundant life? Do I want life in abundance? And I think that the first step here is to just simply ask God for it. And then commit to some practices that puts you in the proximity of the Father so that he can do that work. Now, I know that I haven't given you any specifics to do, but I want this to sink into your soul over this next week. What is abundant life? When you sit down and your mouth is watering because you got turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and the abundance that's before you is just a fraction of what God promises. Do I want that abundance? And am I willing to commit to something that helps me get